0: Well, again, good morning and welcome to Church of the Mall. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip open to Joshua. We're going to be continuing our study. And for those of you that have uh, been a part of the sermons, we're trying to walk through this book because we're asking this interesting question. You know, We're looking at life in this new horizon of post-COVID slash back to COVID and new variants. And it seems like businesses, schools, and work, all sorts of things are still up in the air about trying to figure out what's the best thing to do. Many of our lives have been changed and uprooted And so we are trying to find a new direction in a very strange and uncertain time. And so this book of Joshua is really interesting to me because it takes us to this idea of you've not passed this way before. God calls Joshua and he says, listen, I want you to follow and obey me. I'm going to tell you specifically what to do because you've never been this way before. And as I began studying this a few months ago, it really spoke to me thinking, you know, if we follow God, both the author and sustainer of our lives, then wouldn't it make sense that he would lead us to the promised land? Or the place in which you and I need to be. So we're going to spend some time looking kind of at the beginning and how we got to this place, and then we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at a specific story that lands itself right in the middle of a whole section of Joshua that's going to take us through all these battles. But it's a very fascinating story because it compares and contrasts two characters, one you've already heard about and one you're going to be introduced to. So Before we get there, let's just take a look at this real quick. God's plan from the beginning was to make himself known, to specifically invite humanity into a personal relationship with him. And this begins with Abraham, and then we see it with Moses and Joshua. And so if we were to go back into Genesis and we were to kind of begin this journey so that we can better understand where we're at in Joshua, this is how the story would go. God first chooses Abraham. He reveals himself to him and he says, Now leave your idols and your family and come and follow me, and I will make you into a great nation. God then makes a covenant with Abraham by causing Abraham to fall asleep. God then takes an animal and splits it in two. And then walking between the two parts of the animal is this floating goblet or this floating vessel which represents God, and God is making a covenant. It sounds very odd to us today, but that's a very simple way in which a king would make a covenant with one of his people. A king being all powerful would take an animal, split it in two, and then say, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you. We're going to make a promise to each other. And here's the deal. If either of us violates that promise, then what happened to this animal is going to happen to that person. That's a pretty intimidating promise, isn't it? But the difference between God and Abraham is God doesn't make Abraham walk between the animals. God himself walks through. And so from the very beginning, as God is revealing himself and making himself known, he's showing us that if you fall short in this covenant, Abraham, then may it fall on me. And so we get to see a glimpse of a God of grace and love who wants to not only invite us into his family, but he wants to keep us there. And so Abraham's part of the covenant is simple. Just obey me, trust me, follow me. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And this is how it all begins. Now Abraham, his wife is uh, unable to have children, but somehow God miraculously allows her to become pregnant. And from her son and her sons' sons and sons' and sons and sons' sons, a nation of Israel is born. And we see that family grow into such a number that the Bible describes it as more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore. It, it's hyperbole. It's a way of saying it's enormous, and God's promise and provision is true. God is going to do what he says he's going to do. But after a while, these people end up in slavery in Egypt, and for 400 years, that's where they're kept, wondering where did God go in this. But our ways are not God's ways, and his ways are not ours ways, and sometimes it's hard to understand God's great plan, but if we trust him in the midst of it, we're going to see him unfold, not only his plan, but a way in which he glorifies us in that plan. And so what happens next is God rises up Moses, one of the leaders who will then come and become a savior and pull the people out of Egypt, through a very miraculous way, crossing the Red Sea, in which God will split, and then bringing them into the wilderness. In the wilderness, the people will then come into covenant with God at Mount Sinai. They're given the Ten Commandments. Again, that same covenant made with Abraham You'll be my God, I'll be your people, or um, You'll be my people, I'll be your God. And then God gives Ten Commandments, which are the house rules of how we're going to live in this family of God then the people are wandering in the wilderness, but they're moaning and complaining and it shows their unfaithfulness. And so for 40 years, God says, you know what? I'm not going to take you to the promised land because you're too unfaithful. And so what he does for those 40 years is he allows those people to walk in the wilderness where their shoes don't wear out, their clothes don't wear out. Manna miraculously falls from heaven, which is like a bread substitute that fills them with food so that they don't go hungry. And so for 40 years, God provides and sustains, until that generation passes away, and now the new young generation is coming to encamp on the outside skirts of the promised land. Now, they're separated by a river, um, and they're going to be headed into Jericho. And at this point, Moses is going to pass away, and this is where the book of Joshua begins to pick up. Joshua is now chosen by God to be the successor who is now going to lead God's people, the Israelites, into the promised land. And as from the beginning, God said, I will make you into a great nation. Here he is giving them people, and now a nation also needs land. And so God is going to be taking them across uh, the river into Jericho. So they're going to cross the Jordan miraculously like they do with the Red Sea into Jericho, and we're going to see God's amazing power unfold. So walking back to now just the beginning of Joshua, because we need to jump ahead to to chapters uh, 7 and 8, I want to just really recap quick where we've been. So God now claims Joshua and he says now you're going to lead the Israelites into the promised land on their way into the promised land they come across these other tribes that are just outside of the promised lands that are not Israelites and they invite them to join them and these people become a part of the tribe of Israel 30,000 warriors join them and as they cross the Jordan River where the Ark of the Covenant goes into the water and the waters are split they cross on dry land over into Jericho on their way there they now have an army and they're ready to go and something incredible happens as Joshua is preparing before the battle, a man walks up to him who looks like a general, a force to be reckoned with. And this person is identified as an angel or the general of the God's army. So some people look at the historical records of, of the Hebrews and they say, oh, it must be the archangel Gabriel. Some people look at the historical record of Moses in the bush and they think, oh, no, it has to be a precarnate God. But either way, it is a messenger from God who is coming to say a key quote to Joshua Joshua, you're going to be forced against us. Are you going to join God's army and and obey what God says, or are you going to go on your own? And so at that moment, Joshua says, no, we're going to be for you. And so for six days, they march around Jericho, the most fortified city in the area. And all they do is they march one time a day, and they blast out trumpets, and the people are dead silent. But on the seventh day, they goes seven times around this uh, Jericho, and on the seventh moment, they blow the trumpets, and the people yell out loud and cheer, and the walls of Jericho crumble down. Now, what's interesting about this is the Israelites are spectators to God's glory and God's plan moving forward. Now, there's something interesting that has happened in the midst of this, and I don't want to forget it, because it's going to be a key piece of where we're headed today. As they're getting ready to storm into Jericho, they send spies ahead. And these spies come across a lady named Rahab, who works as a prostitute. She has her own little business. And as she meets these men, she realizes these are Israelites, people who are a part of God's family. And so she becomes this God-fearing woman where she says, Look, I've heard the stories of God and what he did with the Israelites in Egypt. And I heard what he did to the armies that opposed them on their way here. And I heard that he is a God who fulfills what he promises to his people. I want to be a part Will you spare myself and my family when you come to attack Jericho? And they make a pact with her. Now, this is really important because that pact is what's going to end up saving her and her entire family. So that when the walls of Jericho fall, the spies take part of the army in and they grab her and her family and they bring her out safely. And now she and her family become a part of the Israelites. And as the book of Joshua says, and they dwell there to this day, meaning that they spent the rest of their lives as a part of God's community. Now that's really important as we begin to unfold our, our story and plan for today. Now, right before they go in, or right after they uh, or before they go into Jericho, the Israelites are going to encamp on the beach just outside of Jericho. And as they're there, they're remembering what God did, splitting the waters, and now they're coming together, and God says, Now consecrate yourselves. Get ready for what I'm going to do next. Consecration means to prepare or, or to put yourself in the right place so that you're ready to experience what God going to do next. Realizing that this generation is not the old generation, they have no longer been circumcised under the covenant of Abraham, and so Joshua circumcises all the men in that particular group. And that time they heal, and then they celebrate Passover, and then at that moment, God's provision of manna ceases, and now this new land that God promised them will provide everything they need. And we talked about this last week, that sometimes God's provision doesn't come in the way that you and I expect. So feel free to check that out. That's on iTunes, and it's also on our website. But take a look at this, because the circumcision sets us up for where we're headed today. Circumcision carries this connotation of leaving slavery or death to discover freedom. And so we just heard about some of these pieces in the history I just told you. Abraham was dead sexually. He wasn't able to produce children. However, through this new life in this covenant with God, God provides offspring through him and his wife. They become the Israelites. The Israelites are now in slavery. They leave slavery in Egypt, and they discover freedom in a new land. Again, this idea of God's provision. And then, of course, humanity being spiritually dead and given new life in the person of Jesus Christ. When we read the Old Testament, it's a foreshadowing or or a way in which to prepare us for the things that are going to come in the New Testament. So when we see God providing salvation for his people using key individuals, we see that those individuals are leading us up to this person of Jesus Christ who is the ultimate savior of all humanity. And for that simple reason, that God wants to make himself known to us, and he does so through a relationship. So circumcision becomes this metaphor for trusting God with our own lives. It's another way of saying faithfulness or to be faithful. Sometimes we use the word obedient. It's trusting that God will do what he says he's going to do, that God is who he says he's going to, that he is. And so we learn about this by the scriptures we learn about this by our own personal experience with god and so together this helps us to better understand the person and nature of god now joshua 7 8 this is a tough piece for us that god's justice does not show favoritism up to this point god has taken the israelites and he's using them as his tool to go into the nations of the world and show them who god really is So their dietary needs are a little more unique than the rest of the world. How they worship is a little bit more unique. They carry this Ark of the Covenant, this big box in front of them that represents the presence of God. And inside that box are pieces that remind them of what God has done for them, like the Ten Commandments or Aaron's staff that budded. And so it's this idea that as they set up camp, it looks as though a king has come into the territory. And outside the camp, the way they position themselves, it shows a whole group of people that are now uh, obeying or in honor of this king. And so, if you were to ride up to the Israelite camp, or you were to see them traveling across the wilderness, or or into this promised land, you would say that looks like a king and a nation moving forward. And of course, it is. Only their king is gone. And so, this takes us now to this interesting piece where, up until this point, Israel has just kind of wiped out any position that has come their way because God is using them to show the world who he is. But now they're going to run into a situation where it's not enough just to be an Israelite. You have to be obedient. And I find this really important because in my own life, there's times where I've simply relied on the idea that I'm a Christian rather than I'm obedient to God. You know, when the Christians first gathered in the early church, they weren't called Christians. In fact, that came later. That was a slur to make fun of them. What, what they really stood for is followers of Christ's or little Christ's. And so the idea here is that are we truly followers of what God is doing in this world in our lives or are we just doing things our own way? Are we hiding behind the image and the word of Christianity but living our lives totally separate from God? And that's a real question each of us has to wrestle with. And Joshua does a great job here of giving us an example that you and I can wrestle with today. So that's exactly where we're going to spend the rest of our time. We're going to be wrestling. So I told you you're going to be introduced to a new character and an old character. The old character is Rahab. You just heard about her. The new character is this really cool guy, and we often call him Achan. Well, Achan sounds like Anakin, which sounds like a Star Wars character, and that's just bad English. It's actually Achan. It sounds funny, right? Achan. But that's how you would say it in Hebrew. But what we're going to find here is that Achan has a problem. You see, he's going to be disobedient. But Ahan is also an Israelite. And what we're going to see here is that God's justice and and how he disciplines his people is not saved for those outside of a relationship with God, but those inside as well. That what God cares about more than anything is that he is holy and set apart and that his people are holy and set apart. That how we live our lives are representative of his character and nature. And when they're not, we misalign with God. And if we misalign with God, we have broken trust. And we use that term sin to describe that. So let's take a look at this compare and contrast because I think this is really fascinating, again, as it sets us up for the story we're about to enter into. So we're gonna start with this lady, Rab, you just heard about her. She's a lady that uh, is a prostitute working in uh, Jericho. Now she is a believing Canaanite who acted faithfully. Spies come to her house, she takes them in, she doesn't tell that they're there and she makes a deal with them that I wanna be a part. And so she is very faithful. The result is that she's delivered from the destruction of Jericho. She and her family are not wiped out. However, um, they're also adopted into God's family, and so it's as if they become an Israelite or become a follower of God. Now, what we're going to see in the next few parts of the scriptures is this person, Achan. Now, Achan has a problem. He's a disbelieving Israelite who acted unfaithfully, and his result is that he won't be delivered from, dis- from destruction, and really, he acts more like a Canaanite. So, now, I know that you have probably walked around this earth and run into people that claim to be one thing but really are something else. And we often use the term hypocrite to describe that when they don't line up with who they say they are. And so this is one of those situations where people aren't gonna line up with who they say they are. But let's dive into the scriptures and see. So we're transitioning from the conquest of Jericho now to a defeat at Ai, that's another city they're about to go into. Now this is the first defeat they're gonna have as this new nation in the promised land. So, here we go. The problem is in verse 71, Achan disobeyed and stole some devoted things. Well, here it is. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Kami, the son of Zemri, the son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. By the way, if you ever have to read scripture in front of people and you don't know how to pronounce the word, just give it your best shot. Nobody's going to argue because they don't know the difference either. what's important here is the Israelites always name names right there is no first and last name so you are the son of or the daughter of and and they follow you back because it's about not only your family but the tribe that you're a part of if you remember Israel's been split into 12 distinct tribe or family units that have come out of Abraham's family and this is really important because each tribe has significance and is going to be given a piece of this promised land that they're coming into so at this point, as they name the guy, they want to make it clear that we're not just saying Billy Joe Bob. We're saying Billy Joe Bob, son of, son of, son of, so that we know exactly who this person is. This is very important to the Israelite people. Now, what I think is interesting is what happens next here. This idea of devoted things, well, we actually have to go back to chapter 6, verse 17, and I want to share with you that scripture verse so that you understand what Achan did that so upset God and broke trust with him. So check this out. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. This is Joshua speaking with the Israelites before they go into Jericho and tear the city down. The city and all that is in it to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she had the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Now there are times where God says, look, I don't want you to take these things these things are either for destruction or these things are for me. They're not for you. Now, if you can remember back to preschool kindergarten, you learned this lesson. As you reached over to take that crayon from the kid next to you or that Lego brick or that toy truck or whatever it was, somebody said, listen, you can't take something that's not yours. So in this case, what God is really saying is, I don't want you to take it. Now, I want to be very clear here. God is not concerned about the thing. He's concerned about the obedience. Do you trust me enough? And what we're going to find is Achan sees these things, these devoted things, and they turn to be a cloak, some money, and a brick of gold. And he sees these things, and the worth of them and he decides that he's gonna take them for himself to better himself and his family maybe to give his kids a future and he probably comes up with the same lies you and I tell each other when we're trying to deceive ourselves into taking something that's not ours or doing something that's disobedient we justify it last night my daughter and I were given a great gift we were given tickets to the crew game to go see the soccer club here in Columbus and one of the things I found so interesting about watching these two teams play They played the Seattle team. Every time Seattle players got bumped, they would do this. I mean, they even brought out a stretcher for this one guy. And then he jumped up. And the guy behind me yelled, it's a miracle! You know, it was so funny. And I'm asking my daughter, what did you learn tonight? She said, you know, Dad, I learned that if you get bumped in soccer, fall down and fake it until you make it to get the penalty. And I said, that's terrible soccer. But that's exactly what these guys did, all game long. And it was kinda humorous, but it also got kinda ridiculous. And so, when we talk about you know, being faithful, and we talk about being true to our word, and we talk about being people of character, those things didn't quite fit, did they? So, I wanna take us in this story, and again, I kinda wanna reiterate this idea of what it is to be faithful, and what it means for us as Christians, because it's easy to look at the world and go, oh, well, that person's not faithful. Oh, well, that person's terrible. But the reality is God is speaking to us, too, that his justice is not only for them, but for us. And God is looking for those that are willing to trust him in all things. So, it says, keep away from the devoted things so you'll not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Now, God will often build up these treasuries and then do very specific things for it, like building the Ark of the Covenant, a place in which he would then dwell with the people. It's not because God's greedy. It's because God wants to show his glory and might as a king. Every king that would take over a land or a nation or a city would take all the things of that city into their possession to show their great wealth as a nation. This also will become seed money and stuff for the Israelites as they begin to grow their own nation. And so this is interesting. God says, now look, this time around, don't take anything. But... Now, jumping back to seven, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. And Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now, I highlighted some words here and underlined some things because I want to point out what's so interesting about this particular verse that sets us up for the problem that we're running into in chapter seven. Number one, it doesn't say, you know, Achan was unfaithful. It says, the Israelites So that says something, that our sin doesn't just affect us, it affects everybody. Do you know how many times uh, I've gone to a a church or a situation and I had one bad experience with one person or, or one of my friends did? And then they talk about how the whole thing is bad because of that one experience, that one person, right? A little leaven ruins the whole bread. And so, what's happening here is this really interesting piece that our sins don't just affect us. Sometimes we think, "Oh, it's no big deal. It's just it's my sin. It's not your sin. It's it's my disobedience, my breaking trust with God. It doesn't affect you, but but it does." And in this situation, God isn't calling out Aharon; He's calling out all of Israel. He's saying, "Look, it, it's a it's a problem for everyone." Then He says, "You're unfaithful." Unfaithful is a really cool word that's only used a couple of times in this particular passage has to go back to what they talk about in deuteronomy which is unfaithful or adultery but what's happening here is by you being unfaithful you're not trusting god therefore you are seeking someone else to invest your time with you're becoming your own god well i don't know about you but it doesn't work well to have more than one person in the marriage bed and so this is a big problem here that god is trying to reveal to them and we see Achan's name listed here. But I want to point out what tribe he's a part of, because this is interesting. It says the tribe of Judah. Not only is this the largest tribe, but this is a tribe in which Jesus Christ himself, his family, will come out of. And so this is a very, very important tribe. This is also the tribe that David will come out of, the king of Israel, and his sons. And so this is significant. God's judgment here on Achan is not simply being reserved because he's an Israelite. It's not being held back because he's a part of the most uh, influential tribe. God is saying, look, my justice is for anyone and everyone that chooses to disobey and break trust, because I'm a God who wants to reveal myself to the world, and I'm going to do so through you. And so even the good things and even the bad things, God is revealing himself to be a God who has character and his nature that never changes, that's holy and set apart. So this is important to know as we continue our journey here. So here's the four things that we pull out of this first chapter or chapter one. Sin has entered the camp. Our sins affect other people. That's really important. Sin is a broken trust with God. And here's the reality. God won't bless sin. Now, I'll never forget this. I had a friend come to me, and he's like, you know, Kevin, I, I, you're a pastor. I, I want to I confess something to you because it's just weighty. Like, I can feel the weight on my shoulders. You know I love my wife, but listen, I found my soulmate. Have you ever had someone say something like that to you? Now, the next thing he said, I don't remember specifically, but it went something like this. Yeah, yeah, I love my wife, but now this person is the one I've always been waiting for. Oh, no, this is the one that just is my my moon and my sky. This is the one that fills my cup. This is the right person for me. Oh, and you know, my wife's great and all, but you know, we, we really don't talk much anymore. We don't connect. There's no romance. So I, 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 this is the one for me. Now, if you analyze everything that I just said there, you realize... That person did the same thing that I've probably done in my life. I justify something. I sell it to myself as a good thing. And I sell it to myself as why it's a good thing, even though it's not. And in this case, it's not only a violation of relationships between a husband and a wife, but it's a violation of relationship with God. And so no wonder his opening line to me is, I feel so heavy. I want to stop here for a minute and just if you're one of the people that's feeling heavy because there's things going on in your life that you know you're not proud of or things that you're doing that you know you shouldn't, I'm not here to to beat you up about it. I'm just simply saying that that's God telling you that you need to get rid of those things. It's time to let go of those things. That when we return to God and, and we find ourselves in the family of God, obeying and trusting God... Then we find ourselves free, free of slavery, free of sin, free of the burden. It doesn't stop there. Let's continue. The Israelites now are going to make plans to attack Ai or I, this city. What we're going to find here is they now have sin in their camp. They've broken the trust of God, and now they're asking God to bless their endeavors as they move forward. You ever wonder why sometimes things may not always work out in life? Sometimes it's because God has another plan. We talked about that last week, but sometimes it's because we've made plans and we're asking God to bless it, but it's not a plan that God can bless. As I was talking to that friend, I reminded him of being at his wedding and saying, I was there when you made a covenant before all of us and before God saying that you would love this person your whole life and that you would stay true. And you're violating that covenant. And so now you're asking God to bless you in this new relationship, but what you're asking God to do is to break his own character, go against his own nature, and bless what you're doing. And God's not going to do that. And so in this example, the Israelites are now saying the same thing. God, look, we've been unfaithful. We're serving ourselves, but hey, bless us anyway, because we're your chosen people. And watch what happens. They come up with this plan. They say, And to Ai, and they return with instructions not to bring the whole army of Israel for Ai is weak. Hey, no reason to trouble the whole army here, Joshua. 3,000 will be more than enough to wipe these guys off the face of the earth. And so they execute the plan. Israel attacks Ai with only 3,000 troops. Israel is forced to retreat, and 36 die in the process. And then I love this line because we saw it earlier when the Israelites first come into the Promised Land. It says, The king, the Canaanite kings, gather together, hearing of what God has done. It says, Their hearts melted. It means they were overwhelmed with the glory of God and what he was doing. And they were scared because that stands in opposition of what they want to do on their own, separate from God. And so in this case, now the Israelites' hearts are melting because they're realizing, hey, we we just wiped a whole city literally destroy itself in front of us in jericho but now there's only three thousand people and we we can't take them and they they took 36 of our own and we had to run away with our tail between our legs and so joshua gets upset because things didn't go his way and so joshua and the elders they tear their clothes that's a way to say i'm so upset i'm so depressed uh, they put dust on their heads same thing I'm, I'm so upset i just need to cover myself in this i'm going to lay face down before the ark of god's covenant and then joshua pleads with god Now, this next section, I just love because it's very telling into my own life. If you were to read my journal, you're going to see that I do the same thing Joshua does. And it's something like this. Why are you doing what I thought you would do? Why won't you bless me? I think I can make a good God too. And God's like, buddy. Well, let me show you what he says because I think it's hysterical. Now, it kind of is reminisce of Job, when Job does the same thing and he's whining to God. And one of the scripture verses that I love the most is when God approaches Job, he says, brace yourself like a man, for I'm about to speak. And then God says, were you there when the foundations of the earth were being created? Were you there when I did this? And God is proving a point that he is God and Job is not. Now, that happens later in Scripture. But watch what he says to Joshua. It's very similar. And Joshua said, Oh, and the Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. In other words, if we just didn't follow you, we would have been fine, God. We should have just left you alone. Pardon your servant, Lord, what can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for our great name? You know, God, really, this is your fault. You know, you came and saved us and all, and then you brought us into this promised land, and you said it was, you know, going to be ours, and we assumed it would be easy, but it's not, and now we're mad about that. Now, God speaks. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. I'm sure there's a translation somewhere that says, Joshua, shut up. Now, not that God is being rude or nasty here, but what he's saying is, Are you ready to talk to me? Stand up and look me in the eye. And let me remind you of some things, Joshua. Look what God says. Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel is they in their my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things, they've stolen them and they've lied, they've put them with their own possessions. That's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Now, do you know how many times in my own life I've been a part of something or done something that I knew was in direct defilement of what god would want and then i plead and pray that he'll somehow make it work out and then i get mad when he doesn't but like i said before it's as if we're asking god to go against his own character to go against his own nature and it's as if we're asking him to become a liar to support what we're doing when it's against what god is asking so when we talk about obedience, it's not doing our own thing and asking God to bless it. It's getting on board with what God is doing so that we can be a part of his blessing. So I love this because God's saying, look, get off your face. Quit whining and crying. Quit, quit asking me to fix it. You need to get it right. Go and fix what's broken. Now, if we were to jump over into the New Testament, I believe it's in Matthew, where they're having an argument about what to do when you come to the altar to offer your gifts to God. And Jesus says, look, if you have something going on with your brother or your sister or your neighbor or your coworker where there's disruption in the relationship and it's not good, drop your offering, go make it right, and then come back. Why? Because God honors holiness and obedience. Do you know how many times I've come to the altar in in this church or other churches and I've just said, you know, God, I I know I've got a whole bunch of stuff going wrong in my life and I'm not ready to fix it yet, so just just bless me. And God says, how can I bless something that is so against what I'm about? This isn't God being mean. This is God just having a boundary. And so I think this is really important because unless they get rid of this stuff, they can't ask God to bless what they're doing. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not talking about earning your own salvation or working your way to salvation that, oh, if you get yourself cleaned up, then you come to God. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is you've come to God. God's made it clear to you what you need to change in your life. Now you have a choice. You can either change it and find yourself back in right relationship with God or you can choose to keep holding on to it and asking God to bless it, in which God will not. And sometimes we feel like God is very distant from us, and it's because he says right here, I, I cannot bless and be a part of that. You need to get rid of it. Now, the good news is, when you do, everything's right again. You know, One of the things I love about Christianity, in fact, it's probably the most important thing in Christianity, is that we have a God of second chances. Like I told you, that covenant God made with Abraham that if you screw up, God's not going to flay you in half like the animal, that God is going to provide his own salvation for you. And so that's what God does. He, he takes his son, Jesus, and he says, now remember that pot, Abraham, that walked through the animals? Well, now you screwed up, Israelites. Now you've blown it big. You've been disobedient. You've been unfaithful. So here's what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to offer you an opportunity to come back to me. I'm going to provide my son as a sacrifice. The very God who stands before you in flesh. And give that life so that your life can be saved and redeemed. And now that it is, for those of us that trust Christ, we have an opportunity. We can make right the wrongs in our lives. Or, we can continue down that path which eventually leads to destruction. And this is an important lesson for us as Christians. It's a hard lesson. But it's one that I think is so critical to our faith growth and development. So here's what happened next. God says, go and consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. So God is saying, go prepare yourself. Do what's right. Check each person's heart and soul to see, is there anything that lies between us and them that's going to separate or drive a wedge between the relationship? And then go and prepare a way. In the morning, present yourself tribe by tribe. The tribe of the Lord uh, chooses shall come forward clan by clan, and the clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family, and the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord, and he does an outrageous thing in Israel. This is not a turn or burn type sermon. This is simply how things were done in the Old Testament, and they set us up for the reality of those that live their lives in total disobedience to God. Your life will naturally end in destruction. And so what's happening here is God is saying, look, you can't hide sin from me. I know. So I'm going to call you out tribe by tribe. Then I'm going to keep breaking it down, leader by leader, household by household, person by person, until we get to the heart of this. Not because I hate you, but because I don't want this to interrupt or wreck our relationship. And so God begins purifying the Israelites by pulling out the person that has this sin. And so the hidden sin is discovered. Then Joshua, together with all of Israel, take Achan, who has been found to have these things: the son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar. His sons, his daughters, his cows, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble upon us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. And then this is what happens. Then all Israel stones him. And after they had stoned the rest, they buried them in Achan. They heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger before that place had been called the valley of Acre ever since. And so what's happening here is Israel is experiencing what it is to have God come in and flush out the evil and destroy it. Now, this is really, remember, an Old Testament story that is alluding to what's going to happen in the New Testament. The New Testament is that God now has provided that ultimate Savior. That destruction that belongs to you and I and our lives and how we should probably be piled up with stones and left as a monument for the world to see our own sin and our own violation of God, it's been taken away. It's been taken away because God has provided that ultimate savior. But what it doesn't take away is the reality that there is sin that is going to separate us from God. It's going to interfere with that relationship and it's going to try to ruin it. And it's up to you and I as followers of Christ who now have the power of God living in us through the Holy Spirit to recognize those things and be strong enough and faithful enough to admit it and get rid of it. We have to admit it and get rid of it. And this way, you and I no longer have the destruction in our lives. I have been a part of so many interesting small groups in my life. One in particular was this group of men. And I, I love the group because we could talk about anything. And what the group held us accountable to wasn't so much, hey, did you do wrong or did you sin against God or where did you fall short? What they did is they held us accountable to the character and nature of God and the faith that we had in him. And so when our faith began to waver, such as Achan looking at that bar of gold and that mess of silver coins, and then this cloak saying, boy, I don't know if my family's going to have enough in this promised land. I'm going to take it for myself. Even though God said he would provide, he would take care, he would give us everything. I, I don't know if I can trust God in this. It was a group of men that could say, hey, wait a minute, Achan, or wait a minute, Kevin. You, you don't need those things. God said, don't, don't, don't mess with those things. He's got something else for you. This is something else that happened in that group. I was a pretty cocky young man. And I was in seminary studying uh, at Biola University Bible and Christian education. And the homework we had each week in this group was to read a Bible verse, let it marinate or or think about it throughout the week, and then come back and talk about how God used that to change part of your life. The first week, I'll never forget this. I heard that and I went, just what I need, more homework. I'm not going to do it. The next week I show up, And they go around the room and they're asking each person, you know, what did God speak to you as you were reading this? And they get to me and and as bold as a 20-year-old pompous donkey could say, I said, I didn't do the homework. Kind of like, what are you going to do about it? This was the coolest thing. The co-leader of the group said, "Men, stand up. And so we all went to stand up out of our chairs and he leaned over to me and he says, you sit down. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get my ass kicked in church. Because that's what a 20 year old thinks. Now, I did, but not in the way you'd think. What they did is they made every man in that circle drop down and do 10 push ups. And I had to watch. It was excruciating. Then they all got back in their chairs. Nobody glared at me. Nobody wanted to threaten me or beat me up. But that co leader looked at me and he said, Kevin, I'm going to tell you something. We get that homework each week because God wants to do something in our lives. And when we come together in community, God wants to use what's happening in each one of our lives to encourage one another. You failed us tonight because you didn't do your homework, and therefore we couldn't be encouraged by what God is doing in your life. You robbed us. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I did my homework every week after that. And it changed my life sometimes God wants to enter into our lives in such a way that he's going to disrupt the normal flow of things. He wants to weed out things like that poor character I had and that arrogance. He wants to weed out that that need to want to provide for myself and not trust what God is going to do next. He wants to weed out anything and everything that takes away from his character because he wants to use people like you and me to show the world who he is. And Achan is no different. Rahab is no different. Rahab, remember, a believing Canaanite who acted faithfully. Her result, she's spared from all destruction. She's brought into the family of God, and she remains there to this day, as Joshua says. Achan, a disbelieving Israelite who acted unfaithfully. The result, he's not delivered from destruction. He becomes like a Canaanite, and he's buried in a field with a pile of rocks as a monument to remind all that come after him that sin leads to death. Now, I've messed with sin enough in my life to break trust with God to know that it does lead to death. Whether it be sort of metaphorical, like, oh, my my life is going off the rails or the tracks, or my relationships aren't what they should be or could be. But I also know that God wants to bring healing and wholeness to that. And and he always has his arms wide open to bring us in and accept us for who we are and where we are. But that doesn't mean he's going to leave us there. Because our God cannot bless sin and evil. Guys, this is what gives me hope when I look at a world that seems to be falling apart. I think, you know what, God one day is going to come and right all the wrongs. God is going to come and set us free in such a way that we'll never need to be set free again. We will be in perfect relationship with God. And he's given it to us now in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's a glimpse of the hope that will be ours when we pass from this world to the next and we live in perfect unity and community with God and each other. The story of Achan is not to point out someone's sin and beat them up. The story of Achan is to remind you and I that nobody gets to step outside of the reality that sin separates us from God.
1: And although we want to
0: point the fingers at other people, Jesus reminds us that we have to take the plank out of our own eye. And the reason we do that is so that when people look at us, they don't see holier-than-thou people. They see people who know how to come back to God. David was a man after God's own heart. But he was a terrible king. And he wasn't always a good human being, but he knew how to repent and come back. Repent means to turn around. I remember talking to this man one time. He was a a martial art instructor, second degree black belt. And I said, what does it take to become a second degree black belt? And he says, one thing. It's not about all the moves you can do. It's not about the power of your kicks and punches or the preciseness of it. It's whether or not you can get yourself back in shape if you were to completely stop right now. That's what a double black belt can do. Well, as a Christian, it, it's not about getting it right all the time. It's about knowing how to come back to that relationship with God and how to make it right. It's about honoring what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ and saying, you know what, God, I, I've blown it. I don't want to have this broken trust or relationship. I don't want this sin. I want to be a part of your family. And I want you to be a part of my life and family. And I want to know you and for you to know me. And that's when you and I experience the freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. This is exactly what we talk about when Joshua circumcised the people. It's preparing our hearts for obedience to God. And when we live in that, you and I truly do taste everlasting life. So obedience builds trust and it restores our relationship. As followers of Christ, we are not only asked but required in this covenant to be obedient, not forced. But when I think of God giving his own life for mine, why wouldn't I want to honor that gift by being obedient? When I see what God has done throughout my life and what he continues to do, when I read these stories in the Old Testament and the New and I see how God's provision is always there and what he promises, he fulfills, why wouldn't I want to trust and obey? Because now it's God's to lose, not mine. And our God doesn't lose. So as you get ready to leave this space and, and walk into this world, be reminded of this. Then the Lord says to Joshua, after they have gotten rid of all the sin in the camp, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack I. For I have delivered you I've delivered into your hands the king of I, his people, his city and his land. You shall do to I and his kings as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off the plunder and livestock for yourselves. So set an ambush behind the city. If Ahan would have waited for the next battle and been obedient, he could have taken any plunder he wanted from that battle. But instead, he was not faithful and he stole something that wasn't his and he came up short. Guys, this is the hardest lesson in my life right now, is to trust, be obedient, and wait. Because God has a blessing for each of us. I would say constant blessings. But sometimes we get narrow-sighted or we get afraid and we forget to trust in the character and nature of God and therefore we step out and we make some pretty brutal mistakes where we break trust with God because we're trying to serve ourselves. If a Achan would have waited, He could have taken all the plunder and then some he wanted, but he couldn't trust God, so he missed out. Obedience builds trust and restores relationship.